I'm Eric Bricker, and I've been a psychotherapist for over 25 years. One thing I can tell you for certain is that no one makes it through life unscathed. At some point, many of us will rely on the trusted counsel of another person to help us navigate difficult times, or to reconcile the troubled past. Whether conventional or unconventional, professional or informal, there are a lot of different forms that helping relationships can take. This podcast is an exploration into what makes these relationships work. Who are the people that help us? How do they help us? And what do people need help with? My hope is to uncover as much as I can about this very human phenomenon, and I hope that you'll join me. This is the Good Counsel Podcast. Good morning, and welcome to In Session with Eric Bricker and James Feda. We are joined by the legendary George Jan, one of the pioneers in transitional housing for substance use disorder recovery, and uh, we're really excited to have him with us today. George, I'm personally really excited to have you here. You were one of the people definitely wanted to talk to. I feel like you're a very colorful character and a pioneer in transitional housing. Sober Living, which is the the halfway house that you eventually bought and it kind of took over from somebody else. That's been there for about 30 years. Yes. That was, uh, that was started around 1990 by a gentleman named Jerry Singleton. And Jerry opened some of the first treatment centers in Northern Palm Beach or Palm Beach County. One being Ananu. Several people that started off working for Jerry Singleton and Mary Stark at Ananu. People like Sid Goodman, Mike Lobert, uh, and, and a whole lot of different people. And when they closed down, that was the first comprehensive treatment, residential, on-property treatment center that I'm aware of, other than maybe CARP. That was the beginning of it all. That was really the beginning of it that all. That was the beginning of it all. And now between Miami, between Dade County and Palm Beach County, certainly Martin County, probably over a thousand licensed facilities. Exactly. But this thing about transitional housing, it's really interesting. And I think a lot of people don't kind of understand even what that is or how that fits into the Florida model of treatment. Because places like Ananu were sort of standalone residential facilities where someone lived there, they received their treatment there. Ultimately, as the Florida model of treatment transitioned into something else, to more of like a transitional step down integrative with the community model, you had to have these transitional housing opportunities for people to leave residential treatment and then begin to really test out their recovery and reintegrate into society. And it's interesting because the whole idea of halfway houses, it actually comes from corrections that's the place where people go when they get out of jail and you have curfews and drug testing and things like that. But here in Palm Beach County, where there's now hundreds of these things, your sober living was really one of the first. Well, let me give you a little history about what, how it evolved in that. Sure. I came to uh, Palm Beach County in 1992. And at that time, I went to alternatives and treatment. Jerry Singleton was my therapist. And I stayed there for six months. And in fact, the last month, residential treatment, housing, meals, everything, I paid $1,000 for the month. You can't live for that for a week. 
without treatment. What year was that again? 1992. What happened is the insurance companies started managed health, and they managed to reduce the stay at treatment centers. One of my favorite people is John White from the University of Massachusetts, and he, he says directly, success rates are based on the length, longevity of treatment. The longer you stay in a positive environment, the better off you're going to do. I agree with that completely, and that to me is really one of the merits of the Florida model of treatment because essentially what that is, you go from residential, you go from detox or residential treatment to these PHP programs, and as you step down, you let's say you go to transitional housing, it's actually much more cost effective. Most people can't afford to be in a residential treatment program for 90 days, and insurance generally doesn't cover it. So if you had stepped down to this structured transitional housing, which is affordable for middle-class people, then you're going to get that longer-term stay in a structured environment that you need when you're really basically walking on Bambi legs into recovery, trying to figure out how to integrate your skills into working, relationships, and all those things that people have to do when they're first getting sober. And you hit the nail on the head right there. I personally never went to a halfway house. When I got out of treatment after being there for six months, towards the end of our stay there, the facility I was in let you have your car. And you could check out, sign out at five o'clock and go to the 5.30 meeting at, at Central House. And then you come back and have dinner and sign out and go to the 8.30 meeting. And you could even say, I'm gonna go down to Atlantic Avenue. Because at the time, Atlantic Avenue had one cafe open after six o'clock at night. And everybody in the program went there and you had coffee and everything else, you came back. It was a bit of a transitional thing, but you knew that when you came back, you had to be clean and sober. You know, there's no doubt about it. So it was kind of an interim. Jerry Singleton was my therapist. About a year after I got out of treatment, he had hooked me up with a sponsor and my sponsor was my next door neighbor over on the beach in Delray, a guy named Bill Hook. Sweet old guy that uh, was long-term sobriety. And uh, basically, he had a key to my apartment. He could come over anytime he wanted. And it was an extension of that controlled environment where I had to stay behaved. Now, what happened is Jerry became executive director for Hanley Hazelton up in West Palm Beach. So he took that position. And when he moved up there, he had a small halfway house, which was eight beds for men only on a duplex in old Dixie Highway in Boca Raton. And he said, here, George, I think you do a good job. So he just basically turned it over to me. And he worked with another icon in the recovery industry, which is Mary Stark. And Mary ran the women's apartments, and I ran the men's apartments. And we were independent of each other. And, uh, you know, we did that for five years. And then Mary went to Hanley Hazleton. And my future wife, Sue Taylor, now Sue Jan, ended up uh, taking over the women's side. And for people who don't know, Jerry Singleton's kind of like a legend around here. He was the guy that helped start the first program in the South Palm Beach area, Ananu it's called. and Former Catholic priest who got asked to leave the priesthood because of his drinking. And for 25 years plus, he was a leader in the recovery industry, providing quality, Hazelton model type treatment uh, in South... Palm Beach County, and then up at, at Hanley Hazelton. I worked for him for a couple of years at uh, Hanley Hazelton, back when it was a Hazelton. Him and Mary Stark both, so I know them. The colorful people. Definitely when you think about the sort of old school 
of addiction treatment and what it was like versus what it was what it's become like now and when i think about the old school i think about those guys and really interesting people and a really dynamic public speaker and a very charismatic guy jerry singleton super super guy yeah and eventually he retired from hanley hazelton and he made the decision that he wanted to go back into the priesthood and they actually Catholic Church sent him up to Boston for six months to re-up with the priesthood. He came down here and uh, was, he's retired now, but uh, was in a, a parish down in uh, Fort Lauderdale for years and years. In fact, I didn't even know he went back into the priesthood. I go to a men's retreat every year, and on Saturday nights they have confession and mass on Sunday, and I go into the confessional, and there's Jerry Singleton. I said, Jerry, you were my therapist. Now you're my confessor. There's got to be a conflict of interest here. <laughs> he was your therapist, then your employer, then you, he, I mean, I think you got you guys have done it all. Yeah. So you know, Jerry was a sweet Irish Catholic priest, and he said, "George, you're full of shit." <laughs> but uh, you know, it's great to see it. He's a guy who dedicated his life to out helping alcoholics and addicts. Absolutely. Yeah, and a really charismatic guy. I think who paved the way for literally like hundreds of people, yeah. right? So I want to come back to you because when I think about transitional housing, we're here in what I consider to be like the Silicon Valley of addiction treatment. If you want to call it an industry or a field, that's what it is. And there's all these different treatment centers here. And when you think about what that means, it's thousands of people Thousands of some of the most complex substance use disorder, comorbid mental health. When it comes to a point where you have to get out of your area, that to me is kind of like a different quality of substance use issue. Most of those folks are kind of beyond a small problem and into something a little bit down the spectrum. So when you think about that and what that means as far as people going into residential treatment, they go in there. 30 days, 60 days, 90 days, and then they come out, they're going into the transitional housing where there might be like 40 or 50 other people all trying to do the same thing. And a lot of them are struggling even with basic things. Like I'm sure it's not anything unusual to you to have met people who've never made a bed before, never done their own laundry before, have no idea how to cook a meal, have no idea how to get themselves places, people who've never worked before. And in transitional housing, that's where you're really tackling all of those life skills and your ability to handle that or not handle that. That's often the difference between who makes it in sustainable abstinence, sustainable recovery, and who doesn't. And when I think about how difficult that is to help manage people in that circumstance and the amount of people that you've encountered and helped over the course of close to 30 years. It's a lot. It's extraordinary. Your contribution to that is extraordinary. And that's one of the reasons why I was really excited to talk to you. I mean, it's the volume of people that you've helped. And I know some of them personally, right? Like you and I have worked together over the years. And I know people that got sober, sober living, like a lot of them. Mm -hmm. It's pretty amazing when you think about the scope of it. Well, you know, I never planned on getting into the recovery industry. You know, I had a business down an actuarial consulting firm down in Miami, which I sold when I finally moved up to Delray. And when I was here, I went over and got a job and I teach over the community college. I taught there for 28 years. 
in uh, Palm Beach State uh, College. What do you teach? I teach mathematics. Okay, any particular? Statistics, you know, the three kinds of lies, lies, damn lies, and statistics. Yeah. <laughs> and figures never liar, but liars figure. <laughs> yes. So, um, and, and higher level math, calculus, differential equations, which, you know, is my love academically. When I, when I took over the halfway house from Jerry, all I wanted to do was run a nice little small four to eight bed halfway house. And as things changed in Delray and the South Palm Beach County and the growth of the treatment industry down here, there was more and more of a demand. And the one thing I did do is that, you know, I actually did, went back to, you know, I already had graduate degrees in mathematics and I went back and got some degrees in counseling and I was going to become a certified addictions professional and everything else. And I had all the paperwork together and completed the work and I was getting ready to send it off to the state to get my certification. And I started thinking, one, do I really want to do this? Do I want to be, do I want to be a counselor? And, and my future wife said to me, you already get too emotionally enmeshed with these guys anyway. I'm not the type of personality that makes a good therapist because I had I get involved with my sponsees and I, and I need to be able to step back from them when it gets too much involved. And you can't do that as a therapist. You got to be there for them, you know, whatever it is. So I thank God I didn't do that. So I, I, my halfway house was purely residential recovery housing, providing them a safe, sober environment and then coordinating with the treatment centers, and there were plenty of treatment centers and great therapists around here to communicate to them what's going on with their clients and they could communicate you know, with a release, et cetera, what's going on and what he needs to focus on with regards to his early recovery. So George, I appreciate your humility you know, in this, I really do. But I think for a lot of people and some of the people that you've helped, it's a little more than that. And I say that because we have here with us, when James and I were talking about having you come, and I was excited to get you here, because again, all the reasons I talked about before, you're a colorful dude, and I knew you'd have a lot to say, and you're part of like a really rich history of South Florida recovery, and you've helped a lot of people, and you do something interesting. Mm-hmm. And James and I were talking, and he, he told me about the profound impact that you had on him when he was living there, and how his relationship with you really kind of helped turn things around for him and that you were one of the people that kind of inspired James to go back to school and it changed his life. Plenty of guys that would say the exact same thing. I mean, we were at breakfast with one of them today too. There's plenty of guys like George can walk around the city of Delray. Thank God he left because everyone would be running him dry right now, but he can just walk around. There's plenty of people that would attest to some of the same things that he was like an inspiration or a model and through that structured housing and learning to, you know, the simple things first, right? Like George had a really strong staff there of people that would like help you with the small stuff, right? Like waking up, getting a job, all the little things. But then anybody who really wanted something more, they could latch on to one of the people there, whether that be George, Aggie or whoever it was at the time working there. And if they got that like extra hand holding to figure a few things out and they took advantage of those tools that were laid at their feet, they could have gone anywhere. And George probably knows plenty of guys as do I, that went through sober living that are now extremely successful, like beyond like a regular measure of just someone who became sober. So what I want to know, tell us about that relationship and specifically what it was about George and the relationship that that actually helped you. Mm. Um, I would say George was a good example of someone that 
had not only gotten sober, but had built a really colorful life. Like you said, he was a great person, not, not a glum person, not just someone that you think of, oh, okay, great. This guy learned how to stay sober, right? Because he was always very open about his history. So he did it. But at the same time, you know, you looked at him and he had his family in his life. He was married. He had a very interesting career. There was a mixture of a, a lot of different things. You know, he had a really wild history of um, employment, like going from being an actuary to being a professor to being a sober home operator. And you could just tell that he was very successful and was successful in doing whatever he was doing. It was going to be successful, right? Um, so I think that for me, looking at someone that could decide what they wanted and obtain it and then be successful at it. That was something that was very appealing to me outside of just staying sober because for a lot of the young guys, which, you know, he had females and males going through his sober home, but there was young and there was old, there was male, there was female, but there was predominantly, I would say, a fair amount of young guys that go through the program, or at least during the time that I was there, there was an influx of younger people, especially due to like probably opiates becoming a lot more popular. So with that, a lot of us or people in my shoes had never had a job, had never done anything for ourselves. So that almost looked like a beyond grass or like past like a measure that we could ever like set an expectation for ourselves. So in seeing that, it's just someone that you just want to stick around. The good thing about George and a lot of the other guys in the community like George, they made themselves available. Like you said, like he wasn't a therapist. He wasn't like some professional. He was there specifically to help and... Um, and just basically, I guess, osmosis or following him or get, getting some direction from him, he was able to help a lot of people get there. And me in particular, I was able to do it just through watching them, asking them questions. I mean, I was open enough to do that. Not everybody did that. Um, but I know for me, it ended up helping astronomically. I know for a lot of people in the course of life, right, it's the relationships with people that you admire and the people that you respect that really often is the difference in getting over things and moving forward, overcoming adversity, when there's someone in front of you who believes in you that can actually show you how to do it. Mm. So, George, when you hear something like that from him, how's that for you? I mean, I imagine you probably hear that from a number of people. You know, when I first got sober, there was a lot of guys that were there for me. You know, and in my philosophy about how to run a halfway house was a little more of a traditional one. In, in the old halfway house, business in South Florida and throughout the country changed significantly over the years. First of all, there was an influx of more and more clients and residents who needed residential housing with a whole myriad of addictions, you know, drugs, alcohol, eating disorders, relationships, etc. And and it did, did change. And the need for good therapists became essential. I didn't want to get into that because I wanted to be you know, they say in AA, you, you live a better sermon with your life than with your lips. I wasn't the dictator there. I, w I wanted to be the mentor for the guys that lived there. And, and, you know, when the real estate market crashed and everything, all of a sudden in Delray, you can buy properties that were half the value they were a year or two later. And every lunatic in the whole world got involved in the halfway house business. There were realtors asking me, how do you open up a halfway house? And I said, well, you got to be in a, you got to, be a drunk and go to AA and destroy your life, and then maybe you could possibly open up a halfway <laughs> house and be compassionate enough. But there was too many people getting into it for the wrong reason. I can't emphasize it enough. Like when you think about what actually goes into running and managing transitional housing, who you're going to be dealing with, 
and what that actually means and what you're going to be faced with, the kinds of things that go on, whatever (laughs) it is, if you're about, you can make a lot of money doing this and you think that's what it is, that it's like day trading or flipping houses or something, you're in for a surprise. It's an unusual thing to have the disposition to do this and do this well. It's not something that just anybody could do. Well, it's funny you mentioned that because I had plenty of realtors at one point in time who would come to me and say, hey, this you got to be making a fortune. First of all, I wasn't making a fortune, okay? If you run a facility correct, I had 208, 210 beds in three buildings in an enclosed complex. The reason I love that it took me a while to graduate up to that and get all the units, but I had control of it. On New Year's Eve, my staff and I used to stand outside the front gate, the only way in or out to our facility, with a breathalyzer and breathalyze people coming in at one o'clock in the morning on New Year's Eve. And I can't tell you how many years we went through with a full house, 210 alcoholics and addicts, and zero relapses on New Year's Eve. George, that sounds like a really cool way to spend New Year's Eve. <laughs> well, I loved it. I, you know, I loved sounds like it. a really good time. Yeah, and I could and I could think about having meetings down the pool after hurricane when they closed down the whole city and nobody was allowed to go, and then we'd be sitting out by the pool. And one night we heard the the police sirens going and everything else, and we were not allowed to leave the property. And we looked down the street and here's some blue lights coming our way, and the four guys jump over our fence to elude the police. And all of a sudden, we had handed out 200 flashlights to everybody. There's 200 flashlights shined on these two guys. And the guys are out front waving the cops in. You know, they said, this is like cops on TV. We love it. You know, whatever. They I have to laugh, but I had a lot of fun working with the guys. You know, it's like any other newcomer. They'd look at me, you know, and they say, hey, you know, you see that Mercedes Benz? I bought that for you with my rent. I said, you'd be shocked how much, how little money I made. I worked. If I was 100% full, I worked on a 10% profit margin. Hold up a second. Because that type of interaction, that's not uncommon for people to say things like that, right? Early recovery, you really don't necessarily know how to reciprocate, understand relationships, and how things really work. And so the idea of someone maybe being entitled, angry, whatever it is, and they're looking at you and they said, you drive a fancy car and my rent paid for it. How do you respond to something like that? I get a big smile on my face because now I got him. When he questions my intentions and he finds out the real reason, they don't understand unconditional love. It's been their first experience. They may never have had it in their family. They may never had it in relationships with significant others and friends and everything else. It's all about what I can, I can get and you can get. And when they see somebody doing it, and I and I hung out around with a lot of men who did do it. A guy named Jerry Henderson, a guy named uh, Jimmy H. These were all guys that were my sponsor, and I learned about unconditional love. You know, I thought I was the greatest lover in the whole world when I got sober. What I was was a alcoholic addict and a sex addict and the truth of the matter is i learned what unconditional love was all about and you know growing up my father never drank or drug he went to a jesuit prep school and in junior high in high school he took a vow never to drink he never drank his whole life but he grew up in an alcoholic family and you know when they talk about alcohol as a symptom of the problem my dad never drank but he was a dry drunk he was a rageaholic he was a workaholic, everything. 
every ism the alcoholic has except for the alcohol. And I saw what had happened in my family. And I had a lot of resentments and conflicts with my dad. I met my first sponsor, Jerry Henderson. I met him. And, you know, here's a guy who had been married five times, deserted wives, children, everything else. But after 20 plus years in AA, he was the closest thing to a father image in my whole life. And I'll tell you this story because that's how alcoholics learn. You can read the book, big book. You can go to groups. You can do all this stuff. But we learn by watching other people and then trying to duplicate what they're doing. Fake it till you make it act. And that's part of therapy. And unless you do the footwork, you never get the results. I have a profound interest in people's families of origin. And I think that where you come from and what you heard and what you were exposed to when you were young often has a profound impact on who you become, how you see the world, all of it. And it's interesting that you describe your father as you had. It sounded like for all that he was, he was a man that worked very hard to control himself, to set limited, like rigid discipline, because he knew the chaos that was possible if you strayed. And I'm kind of wondering what that actually translated to in parenting for you. Well, in parenting, you know, first of all, as a model, I thought he was the perfect model. He came from Jersey City, New Jersey, came to the University of Miami on a football scholarship, was the captain of the Corps of Cadets at the University of Miami in the Army, and went to World War II. He was a captain, squadron leader of B-17s in World War II, war hero, etc. came back, went to law school, and he had an extremely successful real estate law practice in Miami. Everyone in Miami knew him. Every time I'd get into trouble, you know, I'd go into court and the first thing out of the judge's mouth would be, are you related to Georgie Jan? I'd say, yeah, that's my dad. (laughs) And you can't tell you how many stiffs I got out of with regards to that. Well, that must have been a lot to live up to. Well, it was a lot to live up to, but it was like, you know, be a man, lift yourself up by the bootstraps, do the next right thing, you know, and all this other stuff. And for men, that, that... may be good, but it leads to problems. And and you see it all the time in the issue. You know, I had to I had to let people, even if I couldn't do it, have them think that I couldn't do it. You know, my life was a was a bunch of bullshit. Describe that process of maintaining airs and the importance of sort of inflating one's yeah. ego as to never appear vulnerable. Yeah. Yeah, that was it. You know, I had to be the best in sports. I had to be the best in academics. My parents sent me to prep schools when I was younger. Of course, you know, after a couple of years, my parents realized that's where the really rich juvenile delinquents go. So I went to I went to a, a high school. My high school had was probably one of the three best high schools in the United States, Carl Gables High School. They had more merit scholarship finalists than the other school in the United States. We were na- I played football and tennis. We were national champions in football and national champions in tennis and state champs in every other sport. And academically, I took every math class they had in the high school. In my senior year, before there was dual enrollment, I used to take my math classes over the University of Miami. 
I got I scored an 800 on my SATs in mathematics. I went to Vanderbilt University. I had a football scholarship. I got up there, played football for a year and a half. I had an injury. I had to quit. But more important is, I had discipline living with my parents. I went to Vanderbilt, and all of a sudden, I'm on my own. You know, I'm I'm playing at the parties and all this other stuff. And meanwhile, my grades suffered. You know, my, my parents were in shock. I was National Honor Society in the first semester. I had three Ds in it and an A. And the A was calculus because I already took it before. And so that was the first thing I realized that I had no self-discipline whatsoever. And I was always trying to follow in somebody else's idea of what I should be like. So kind of taking a cue from your father, it was sort of you could thrive when there was rigid structure. Exactly. But left to your own devices, having kind of had that rigid structure and really, in a way, being repressed by that. Yep. And when you finally were out on your own, and I imagine probably losing football too, you lose some structure and discipline Uh, with that too. I had a real short, non-dramatic college football career. (laughs) Gotcha. So once you left that structure and you didn't have that, you were kind of out there on your own. Well, you know, at first it wasn't that bad. And I switched from football over to businesses and I became an actuary, I took the actuarial exams, started my own consulting firm, did really well. And at one point, I had a, a partnership with three guys. We had 500 employees in about 10 cities throughout the United States. How many people? 500. That worked for you? Yes. That's a pretty big business. Oh yeah, it was big. And I was the partner in charge of Atlanta, New Orleans, and San Francisco. This is the part where I pretend that I actually really know what actuaries do. Well, basically, an actuary is somebody who's been studying statistics and mathematics, deals with life contingencies, probabilities with regards to business applications. No, I knew all that. I just wanted to make sure James understood. (laughs) (laughs) And we did pensions, and we we were very successful. We dealt with Merrill Lynch. Uh, We did pension plans for all the partners of Wall Street law firms. Freed Frank Harrison Schreiber Graceman, Sergeant Shriver's law firm. I used to go to the U.S. Hoban because uh, John McEnroe's father was a partner in one of the things and sit up in the booth. That was a big shot, you know. Now, as a result of that, I started drinking more and more, and I started having affairs, and I got divorced from my first wife, which was a hard thing for me to go through. And it was like a reckoning about what was going on. When you talk about the reckoning. I think it's like a really important thing when people see that in their own substance use disorder in the progression. When you talk to people about it and there's that first consequence that comes, the one where you can't get a do-over, where this is permanent. For some people, it's a turning point. And for other people, it's kind of the skids onto like a greater decline. Well, mine wasn't a turning point. <laughs> mine was the world's so unfair to poor little Georgie Jan. And these people just don't understand. And it took me a while. So, but I was really good at controlling my drinking, I thought. And and I still had the business going and it was successful, etc. You know, and then there were, there were some problems. In the dynamics of my family, my father was extremely successful, but a raging dry drunk. I was 
always the star. And I had a younger brother, Michael, who was two years younger than me. And Michael was snake bitten since day one. Everything that I would get away with, he'd get caught. First time, you know, I sneaked the car out at night, no problems whatsoever. The first time he got his driver's license, he drove to the end of the street, put the car in gear, laid a patch, and took off and got pulled over a block away from our house with three tickets. And his life continued like that for on and on and on. And basically, he went to law school, he got into legal problems, he got disbarred, he uh, picked up a 15 year old runaway in Orlando went into Walgreens and bought hypodermic needles and progressed to shoot up in the bathroom in Walgreens until the police to kick the door down. And, you know, he had to go to prison. It was disbarred, etc. One of the things important in my recovery is my brother went to treatment at Alternatives with Jerry Singleton two years before I did. And he went to Central House in the old uh, American Legion buildings, just like I did when I first got sober. And the bottom line is he's dead because after going down and down that elevator that we go down when we're drinking and drugging, he finally got to a place so black that he didn't think he had any ways out and he took his life. How long ago did you lose your brother? 1990. And then I came to Del Rey in 92. So that tragedy for your family, I'm sure it was devastating. It tore whatever family relationships we had, it tore them apart. And And I remember I had to go over and tell my mother that my brother was dead. And the first words out of her mouth was, don't think you're fooling anybody. You're doing the same damn thing. And I had had to accept that. Now, for the next two years, I went to South Miami Hospital. I went to all these treatment centers and everything else, but I was in and out, in and out. And there was so much emotional grief and turmoil in our family. I, I couldn't stay sober to save my life. That's the truth of the matter is. And I needed to have that higher level of treatment. Outpatients didn't work for me. Of course, you know, I was totally ignorant to what recovery was about. I have to imagine that that two years in between your brother passing and you actually getting sober was probably just a torturous yeah. period. It was. With a lot of really painful lows. Yeah. I can imagine what that was like. Well, you know, we'd we'd go into groups and they'd a therapist would with my parents and my brother. I mean, not my brother, my sister. And uh, but when you put the whole family together in one unit, it was the most dysfunctional relationship, and everything would revert right back to my brother's death, and none of us could get through it. It took a long time, and it took me a long time. What was the thing that your family did? Often with tragedy, you get avoidance. Yeah, you understand. My father is a really successful attorney. My brother was an attorney. My two sisters were both very successful attorneys. I was an actuary. I figured somebody needed to make an honest living, so I (laughs) went into mathematics. But lawyers have this tendency of wanting to control the situation. So when everybody's in fear, everybody's trying to control everything around them. And it turns into a total disaster. Nobody can relate. Nobody can feel anything. And that was it for me. And being a man, I was taught you had to step up and take control of the situation. I finally realized years later, hell, I was no different than my brother. You know, taking control is the last thing I need to do because I always got the same results I always got. So it was important for me to 
basically let go. And moving up to Del Rey and, and going to treatment up here and getting good treatment and having resources around me when I get sober was critical. I stopped making decisions. I stopped being in charge. Now, I also filed bankruptcy and owed the IRS $500,000 in payroll taxes, which took me 15 years to pay off. But it slowed me down. And part of that letting go, working a 12-step program in my life and working with it, it changed my whole attitude, meeting the right people. I have to give you a little caveat. After five years of running Sober Living, I relapsed again. And um, at that point in time, it's a humbling experience. That's a really interesting thing. And it happens, right? There are people who, recovering people who work in the field of addictions, treatment and recovery, and relapse is sometimes part of it. And in my experience, for the vast majority of those people, finding your way back into recovery, which is hard enough, but then finding your way back into recovery and being a credible advocate for others, very difficult thing to do, and not very many people pull that off. Well, I can't say that I pulled it off. I can say that I had some, I had some good people in my life. Well, you kind of have to. Oh, yeah, you need some real strong people. You have to because you're going to endure some shit. Oh, yeah, well, you know, I always tell, and I see some guy that, you know, I, I like to share that. I raise my hand. You know, I'm going to have 21 years this year, and I like to raise my hand. And I'm a chronic relapser because I was a chronic relapser. Okay, and even after getting five years of sobriety, I picked up. Now I was in shock by picking up a drink. Three days later, I'm in a crack house, and my they always laugh about cell phones when they call somebody and their cell phone voicemail is full because. My, I would listen to the messages in the crack house and they start off like, hey, George, how you doing? Didn't see you at the meeting today. George, what's going on? Hey, give me a call back, man. I'm starting to worry. And finally, you asshole, you relapsed again. <laughs> and that's how the, the messages goes when we go out on a run. You know, when I came back in, I came back on New Year's Eve, 1999. My significant other, soon to be, my wife, it only took me about 13 years to actually ask her to marry me and get married. But uh, she said, go to your bedroom. Don't even stick your nose out, you know. And I had people in my life who were ready for me. And one of them was Father Martin, okay. You know, we had gotten a lot of clients down from uh, Father Martin's Ashley. And May Abraham and Father Martin were the co-founders. And we worked a lot with those guys. And we'd go up and visit them. And they, were, they became close friends. You knew him? Oh, yeah. Father Martin? Yeah. James, did you ever see like Chalk Talk know, and yeah. the, the whole thing? I mean, everybody knows. Father Martin's, yeah. Father yeah. Martin's Ashley is kind of a legend. And if you did, if you don't know about the facility, anybody who works in treatment or has been to treatment has certainly seen the videos, yeah. particularly Chalk Talk. Yep. How many copies of the Chalk Talk VHS do you think there are distributed in the world? Well, they they, they actually got it, started doing them on CDs right now, oh, okay. as a matter of fact. But, you know, I mean, every treatment center, every facility with any kind of recovery had Father Martin's Chalk Talk. And, and it started out that uh, May Abraham, who is the co-founder, and that's a, you know, this is a story about AA. In my experience, it wasn't what Father Martin said. It was the way he said it. The one thing in my recovery is 
the strong, disciplined person controlled me and helped me to excel in sports and football. Your father? My father, the football coach, whatever it was. But left to my own devices, I was a disaster. And I had to learn that I had to stop living up to somebody else's expectations. And that's where, for me, AA is all about love. And most important is unconditional love. And it's more it's important even more than that, it's unconditional love from another man. You know, until I learned how to love another man in in a spiritual sense and accept myself the way I was, that I'd be able to stay sober. That's a really heavy concept, and I think for a lot of people that when you arrive at early recovery connecting with people and being able to form meaningful relationships there's for a lot of folks like a deficit there yep and i think probably the single greatest challenge that people have to overcome is the willingness and openness to be vulnerable with other people yeah because you can only connect so much you can tell when you're talking to someone who has no vulnerability you always get the sense that you're in the presence of their representative you know (laughs) like like you're meeting with them and you're meeting with their agent and they don't listen to you they're they're figuring out their rebuttal (laughs) they're figuring out their rebuttaling and and what sounds cool and very focused on that you must approve of what i'm saying and see me as cool and when we let go of that we're capable of having like meaningful relationships with other yeah. people. So we, my wife and I had, we had developed enough of a relationship with Ashley and father Martin and they used to come down and father Martin, you know, this is kind of a side note. Eventually my wife and I lived together in an apartment in the halfway house. In fact, we lived in the women's building and there were 64 women and I was the only man who lived in that building with my wife and that we also had the woman's office there. And, you know, all, all the guys, you know, when they first get sober, all they want to do is meet newcomer girls. Well, I lived in that building for 18 years. By the time I got out of it, I was so sick of newcomer girls. <laughs> it was unbelievable. I'd be there in the morning having coffee and they're knocking on the window. I'd say, Sue, one of your girls is here. But that, that was important for me too because... I never dealt with a woman in our halfway house in 28 years. I remember specifically working with Sue over the year with uh, female clients that were placed at um, Sober Living. And some of that was when I was working with the Seminole Tribe. I think some of that was when I was working at the Wellness Resource Center. Um, I think Life of Purpose. I was always very fond of her, working with her like a no BS kind of straight shooting. And I think she really always had a way with these women. And they they took her seriously. And she was caring. She was, for a lot of these women, like exactly what they needed. There's no negotiations, but at the same time, it's still unconditional love. Yeah. And so, you know, one of the things was with Father, he would come over and he'd come over to our apartment. We'd have a line of clients outside coming in to say hello to Father Martin. And uh, we used to go over to the Fifth Avenue Grill, and he loved having dinner there. Well, my wife used to be the manager there, and so we would get a lot of the kids' jobs over there working as women. They were good jobs working in a 
high-end restaurant. But they they keep track on everybody there because when Sue got sober, she was still working there. And all the staff there, even though they're all, half of them are half alcoholics and they're all drinking, they would keep an eye on her. And, and they supported her because they knew what she was doing was the right thing. So Father Martin and I would go over there and at the end of dinner, there'd be a line of waiters and busboys with their big books asking Father Martin to sign the big book. And then Father Martin would say, come on, George, I got to sing for my supper now. So we'd go over to the Saturday night meeting at Central House and it'd be eight o'clock at night. And we'd walk in there. And first of all, we'd pull up to Central House and the word would get out Father Martin was in town. And usually on a, on a Saturday night, there'd be 30, 40 people going to the meeting. The parking lot is packed. There's 300 people waiting outside. We'd bring Father Martin in, whoever the speaker is, say, oh no, Father Martin, you talk and everything else like that. You know, it was he was such a sweet, loving man and so willing to do anything. In fact, his autobiography says is named In One Step More. Because someone asked him once, Father Martin, how far will you go to help the alcoholic in the attic? And he says, I'll go as far as I need to go. And then one step more. He was a sweet, sweet man. A massive contribution to uh, residential addictions treatment. And, you know, like we said earlier, his works, his uh, informational videos. And if you watch the videos, people in 80s clothes crazy hair and the, <laughs> yeah. whole, the whole thing but yeah a massive contribution and and you knew him in such a way it's amazing when you think about a guy like that is going to show up to a meeting and that's it's like a draw yeah you know for all oh, these people unbelievable and uh the bottom line is when i relapse my wife gets on the phone and father martin says sue when you get hold of the guy put him on an airplane and ship him up to me and so I am just coming off of a run for a week. I am humbled. I am humiliated. I am everything. Okay. I got every 30 day wonder in AA telling me what I did wrong. And I walk into Ashley and Father Martin and May Abraham are sitting in the lobby waiting for me with a sign that says, Welcome, George Jan. We love you. And I was about to go into tears when it happened. And every time I think about it, and he just came up and gave me a hug. And told me, he says, you're safe now. We'll take care of everything. And that was my journey into real recovery. And it's funny how things happened after that. Then I came back. I had a sponsor named Jerry Henderson. who was one of the sweetest guys I ever met in AA. And he says, here, George, here's what I want you to do. There's your halfway house. And you live up there in the corner apartment. You don't get to go over to the men's side for a year. He said, you can't talk to anybody there or anything else like that. If you get the rent deposits, you can deposit them in the bank, do the bookkeeping, but you don't have nothing to do with the operation. Of course, a year and a half later, things were running so wonderfully. (laughs) Without me, I was considering doing it on a permanent basis. But that's what I need to do. I needed to isolate myself and focus on myself. And that's when I started going to men's meetings for me, which made all the difference in the world. Because even even when I first got sober, you know, you, you can be delusional to yourself. That's the dangerous about this disease. You know, I'm sharing my experience and strength well above my experience, strength, and hope just to sound good in meetings. And I had to learn how to not sound so good, to be honest with people. And that took a lot. And the other thing about relapsing, too, I always tell guys, they said, you know, you relapse, we don't shoot the wounded, you get yourself back into the rooms, you start working with people. If you need help, you get the help. 
I said, but I tell you something right now. If you don't think there's not assholes in AA, you're not going to enough meetings. Sure, you're going to get a lot of grief after a relapse. And it's probably what you needed. But you'll also find who has a real recovery in their life. Because those are the guys that are going to reach out and help you. And the right guys helped me. So, that's my story and I'm sticking by it. (laughs) Final words, thoughts? Final words, you know, um, I know a lot of really, really good therapists who are not in recovery. So it's not a prerequisite for being in recovery to be a good therapist. But as far as transitional housing is concerned, I believe in my heart that it has to be there. If it's if it's all financial, you're not going to do the right thing by your clients. And if it's all spiritual, you're going to be out of business <laughs> very quickly. And you got to learn how to run the business well and provide all the services that are needed because these people are are sending their kids to your place and they rely upon you. And you know that that's a commitment. And so for me, the recovery residence, it was the best thing that ever happened to me. I always, always share. My name is George Jan, and AA a, a is the best idea that I never had. You know, I want them to discover recovery just like I recovered, dis- discovered recovery. You know, and the way to do it is by making a commitment to yourself. No one else can do it for you. So it's nice to see you, Eric. It's nice to see you, Jimmy. Always. And that's all I can think of. Got any other questions? Ladies and gentlemen, we've said it all. (laughs) That was George Jan, transitional housing, recovery residence legend of South Florida, and a humble guy. And George, it was great to have you here, man. Thank you so much for coming and participating in this with us. We we really appreciate it. It's been been a lot of fun. Yep. All right. Anytime. God bless.